Hello, and welcome into week five of our fall 2022 curriculum podcast. We are going through the Sermon on the Mount. This is Landon, and I'm here with my good friend, CJ. Hello. And we are continuing to work through Matthew 5. So CJ, if you just want to start by even giving us a little bit of a recap of where we were last week and then talk about what we're going to jump into this week. Good. So last week, I think Allie was on, is that right? Correct. Um, She was talking about the section in the middle of Matthew 5 where Jesus talks about his relation to the law and he does the most terrifying thing that he does and says that, hey, I'm not really here to talk about the law. I'm here to talk about something more difficult than the law. You know, so he starts with the, um, if you've, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit murder, but if you hate someone, then, then you've murdered them in your heart. So he comes and says, I've not come to make the law go away. In fact, he's come to make it even more difficult, which I think is something that's missed a little bit sometimes with these sections. He actually raises the bar substantially with, uh, with this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And my section very much is kind of in the vein of that raising of the bar. How are we going beyond merely actions to the heart behind the action? And really that's where the the issue and the problem is. And he starts spelling that out in some different ways. So I think in her week last week, we talked a little bit about anger, murder, uh, and then lust and adultery. I think we're also in, in, in her week and, and mine stuff. Mine continues on with, with adultery as well. That's kind of where we start. So it, it flows pretty, pretty straightforward in, into my week. Cool. Uh, and I guess, you know, going into this section where it's like you have heard, uh, maybe we haven't heard, but Jesus's audience would have heard. So mm-hmm. maybe give us a little bit of that context of what Jesus means when he says, you have heard, what's the law? Yeah, good. So uh, the law is the, the Old Testament law that was given to the, the Jewish people started with, with Moses. It's the stuff in the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Leviticus, especially Leviticus, Exodus, or Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, all that stuff, the, all the commands about how to live, right? That you shouldn't do this. And then also just kind of very straightforwardly, the, the, the 10 commandments that there's just these rules for living that the Lord communicated to Moses and which were the rules for how God expected holy people, his set apart holy people to live. And uh, these were what ended up being really focused on by the Pharisees through, uh, throughout the course of Jewish history and especially in Jesus's day. Here's this set of behaviors that we cannot engage in in order that we can make ourselves stand out as being set apart from the rest of the peoples of this world. So when Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't do this, that's what he's referring to, this code given to God's chosen people to set them apart from the rest of the world and the actions that are a, a part of that code. And so what he's doing is he's, he's raising the bar. He's saying this actually being set apart is not just about the actions that you do, though, of course, those matter. Those are the fruit of what actually sets you apart. What really sets you apart is what's going on on the inside, what's going on in your heart. What is the character of a set of, a person or a people set apart, uh, a godly people, as opposed to a, a, a worldly, a worldly people who even they might have some, some virtuous actions, but it's really the heart that produces the actions that I think Jesus is trying to get us and focus our attention on rather than merely just the actions, which is all that the Pharisees cared about, which is why he called them whitewashed tombs. Here's all this great stuff that you do on the outside, but really it's the inside that we have to worry about. Now, a good heart will manifest in good actions. So he's not asking us to be like, uh, I don't know what the opposite of a whitewashed tomb would be, like a, <laughs> a really ugly... Russian doll that has a golden center. I don't know, whatever the opposite. He wants us to be like a really beautiful thing on the outside because we're a really beautiful thing on the inside. And you know, the whole point of his ministry and the giving of the Holy Spirit is to make us beautiful on the inside. 
Cool. That's good. Uh, so as you dove into this passage, uh, obviously we hit on a few different topics here, but what really stuck out and what would you want students to, maybe what would you want to highlight for students out of this passage? Um, I think the thing that sticks out to me the most, I don't know if this is what needs highlighting or not, but when I read this, the thing that sticks out to me the most, it's nothing in particular, but this passage, my passage, where Jesus talks about um, adultery, well, I guess, should we kind of quickly lay out what he talks about in my passage? Great, yeah, yeah go for yeah, it. Yeah, sure. So he, Jesus is continuing his teachings on the various subjects, right? So he just finished a lust and adultery and he moves on in my, that was last week. And then he moves on into the, the section for this week and he begins by discussing divorce. And this makes sense. Obviously the Christian vision of sexuality is an integrated whole. So discussions of love and marriage are necessarily gonna involve discussions of divorce, which is why, especially in, in the other gospels that this goes uh, kind of hand in hand with, Jesus ties all of this back to the divine foundations of marriage. So it's no surprise that the first bit of discussion in this week's passage comes uh, directly off the, on the heels of last week's discussion. But after talking about uh, divorce, he then goes on to discuss kind of various issues of justice. Though of course, discussion of divorce has significant implications for justice as well, treating your spouse justly. So he talks about oaths and honesty, like your yes be yes, your no be no. He talks about the foundational principle of justice, one that's kind of shared across many cultures, an eye for an eye, and about how that actually relates to personal behavior uh, and even going beyond that justice principle um, commanding his followers to turn the other cheek, which I do hope we talk about. And then finally, the my section, uh, this week's section ends with the discussion of loving your enemies rather than hating them. Because uh, even the worst kind of person can love their friends, but only a divine love can love its enemies. So that's what this section is about. Now, what from all that stuck out to me back to your original question? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so actually nothing in particular from that passage <laughs> stuck out to me. Um, what stuck out to me was the kind of uh, character of the whole of this passage that to me, it was like a, a deep call to a profoundly simple way of being and living, even if it is literally the most difficult thing to do in the world. Hmm. So I'm always yeah. motivated by, and like really moved by the idea that the good life is actually not that complicated. Yeah. That it's actually really simple. Be the kind of person who keeps your promise to your spouse. Don't leave her, forsake her, but love her. Be the kind of person who, when you say something, people know you're actually gonna do it, right? Don't be someone who needs to go through elaborate forms to convince people you're trustworthy. Just be trustworthy. Don't be vengeful. Living at peace can't be done without forgiveness and charity as well as suffering. And then love, even our enemies deserve it. So I get moved. I mean, and to me, like you lay that out and it's just so profoundly simple on some level, on some profound level that's utterly simple to do, to be that kind of person. And so I get really moved by visions of the good life that reveal it to be fundamentally about purity and simplicity. And and this isn't to say it's not profound. It is profoundly difficult, um, but it's also profoundly simple. Uh, A local farmer and writer, Wendell Berry, like has this effect on me when I read about his just very simple life. And it's a tough life, but a very simple life of farming and living at peace with his neighbor and at peace with his land. Um, The man won't even buy a computer because he loves simplicity and a good way of life. Um, a more accessible example of this might be Ted Lasso. Uh, I don't know if you've watched. I have. Yeah, I mean, yep. there's something profoundly simple about that man. Does he suffer? Sure. Like in, in this character, he's go through some. He goes through some difficult stuff, but at the same time, there's a kind of profound simplicity and a purity of character about him that I think everybody kind of intuitively likes, which is why it got so many. There's a reason it's so popular. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason it's so popular. He became a cultural phenomenon, I think, because on some level, he shows us that being good 
is actually really simple, even if it's not easy. Mm. Right. And so I don't want to just water this down to be like, we'll just do these things. And that's, you know, and that's what this is really about because that's not the thrust of the passage. Remember, yeah. Jesus isn't just talking about our external behavior. But I do think that the general thrust of this passage, there is a kind of deep call to be this kind of person. Mm -hmm. And that's not an accident because it's coming from Jesus who was that kind of person. So more than I wanna be like Ted Lasso and more than I wanna be like Wendell Berry, I want to be like the person that Jesus describes here, which is just to say, I wanna be more like Jesus. He actually was that kind of person. He's an utterly faithful person. Even when those he loved were faithless, he kept and he keeps his promises. Nothing better epitomizes turning the other cheek than the buildup to the crucifixion to say nothing of the crucifixion itself. He died for those who hated him rather than exacting justice against them. And then Jesus' life was, was difficult, but it wasn't complicated. And that's, oh. what, that's what sticks out to me more than anything about the specifics of these mm -hmm. passages. It's just the whole vision of the simple, but profoundly beautiful good life. Yeah, I think that we can often equate in our minds something being simple and something being easy. Yeah, not the same. And I think that we, something like we gravitate, I think towards things that are easy, but we also like to make things complicated. Yeah. Um, so those things can be at odds where we have to really fight for simplicity. Yeah, like my, my kitchen is simpler than many people. I don't own a microwave, which means like there's a kind of simplicity, there's less technology, there's less things I can do and, and need to do, but there's like really annoying times when I want to warm something up right. and I can't, right? Uh, which is to really trivialize the example. But yeah, simplicity is not easy. And I think when we think about it for more than two or three seconds, we, we realize that to live a really simple lifestyle means you have to give up a lot of things that might be creature comforts that you might be able to have and do if you had a more like lavish or complicated lifestyle. But it seems to me that the visions of the good life that I'm most drawn to are those simple visions. Mm -hmm. yeah. But there's like something that I think that gravitates towards almost using the law as a crutch. And I think this is probably would have been true of like the people in Jesus audience where they like, well, I can define myself by following these rules. Uh, and that's where I like define like my inner goodness instead yeah. of like out of um, just living like a life that looks like Jesus. And, and you can imagine that this is a kind of extremely complex way of, of living. If you think of your external acts as something like adornments or things that you, you wear, right? They're dressing their lives up with all of these uh, ways that they look to other people, the, the words they use, how they act. Are they checking off all of these boxes for doing these certain actions so that they can appear a certain way? And there's just something like fundamentally complicated about that. And mm -hmm. I really think Jesus is just saying, it's really not about all of those adornments just be the kind of person that I'm describing here. And then you'll be adorned in just the way that you need to be adorned. You know, so I think the Pharisees actually lived a really, in, in you know, the way that we're talking about here, a kind of complicated lifestyle, mm -hmm. one full of um, empty ritual, one full of performance and concern for how other people saw them. And, and I'm sure that on some level, it was really complicated and debilitating. And I think the simplicity of Jesus is just, a really stark contrast to what they would have been like the, the Pharisees. Yeah, really appreciate that invitation to just catch the the larger, more simple vision that Jesus is casting here. Yeah, that's what stuck out to me. So I, if I had to pick a specific verse, I'd say maybe verse 37 about your yes and no, because basically it just kind of perfectly encapsulates yeah. this. Just be a person who says, when you say yes, like you're known as being, your yes is yes, your no is no. Simple, profound, not always easy. That's good. Uh, cool. So 
obviously we're reading through Stott's commentary in the book, but uh, he was writing to a more, much more broad audience and our discussions are happening uh, amongst college students and um, that should connect in some way to the, the college life. So how, um, how do you see this passage connecting to, to campus or speaking directly to college students? Yeah, so relating the particulars of this passage to campus and college students can be a bit tricky. Not too many people need to be talked out of divorce in college because not <laughs> a lot of college students are married. There are some, but not many. But we do live in a culture of, so we'll just take the divorce one, for example, right? We do live in a culture of throwaway relationships though, hmm. right? Far too many of us know the pains and the consequences of divorce, right? This lived experience of broken families and throwaway relationships should lend some credence to Jesus's alternative vision of the good life and a good marriage. One in which there's stability and permanence in our relations of love and there's suffering in those as well. So while the early part of this passage focuses on divorce, it is unavoidably connected to questions of marriage, sexuality, permanence, and relationships. And so I think a campus culture that's filled with hookups and pornography has a lot to hear from Jesus's teachings on divorce, mm. using other people as tools for sexual gratification with no promise of permanence, which is marriage, is to basically live out a culture of throwaway relationships. And that's what Jesus was dealing with in his time too. Men would, for no reason, cast off their wives if they had any other thing they were wanting to do or another person that they were wanting to marry. Um, it was a culture where especially men could, could treat women as objects of their use and could throw them away whenever they wanted to. And I think our culture might be much more similar to their culture than we, than we care to think about. Hmm. Um, the other parts of the passage uh, about principles of justice, uh, and that intersects specifically with vengeance and kind of personal retribution. Our culture, I think our culture generally has a problem with discerning the line between justice and vengeance, uh, especially in internet culture has a really <laughs> tough time knowing the difference between what is vengeance and justice. So it really might be worth asking where we see culture and campus engage in something like bloodlust and how we see Christians can model something different. Um, but there's some of this that we probably don't need a ton of specific applications for. It's like, what are the oaths on campus that we're not supposed to swear, right? The student code of conduct, no, no, <laughs> probably not. I think his teaching on this front is again, just much more about the heart, the thrust of the passage, which I described above, right? Painting a good life that boils it down to basically being a, a simple and pure, a person of simple and pure character is obviously relevant to college students. So how do we begin to cultivate the character and dispositions Jesus describes here rather than just the actions. Right? So college is a time where students are meant to come and in some ways kind of experiment with their lives, try new things, learn new things, be new things so that they can figure out their own complexity and individuality. You know, they gotta be authentic and they need to be real. And I think there's a real call to this. I mean, this is, a, this is something I've deeply embedded into our culture, this, this call toward authenticity and to be, to be real. But that also involves in college, just complexity, individuality, and all of this really complicated uh, experimentation. And um, I think that there's this sense in which for many college students, uh, college is a time of added complexity and anxiety for these very reasons. And so I see Jesus's way of life as being peaceful and, and simple. That doesn't mean it won't involve suffering, it might, but you'll, there'll be a kind of inner peace and simplicity to your life that I think would mark you as being very different from the average college student. I see the person described in this passage that Jesus is talking about. Um, I see this person in some ways, as living out the true call to authentic living, to live a simple and pure life that's not blown about by the forces around us. But our culture's understanding of the authentic and good life is one of increasing complication 
at becoming as differentiated and complex as possible? And uh, how many new words are we inventing to describe just, for example, the ever-growing complication just in the realms of sexuality? Mm-hmm. And I think Jesus just presents you with a radical alternative to this, that this growing complexity, anxiety, and complication is not actually the way to find peace and not actually the way to live a beautiful and a good life. Um, so I think the college campus is a place where someone who really lived like Jesus would, would stand out in what I think are deeply attractive ways. A person who keeps her word, a person who exudes peace in the midst of difficulty, a person of deep and committed relationships, a person who gives even more than what's demanded of them. Hmm. Uh, I think that person living out this ethic that we see Jesus laying out here, becoming this kind of person would be someone on a college campus who would stick out, stick out like a, a sore thumb or, or maybe sore would be the wrong word. Maybe stick out like a healed thumb. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think even as you were talking about that, what came to mind was roommate relationships in college <laughs> and how, and really any relationship that you have during these four years where it's all about, you know, getting ahead and bolstering your resume. I think there could be this tendency that I'm only going to be friends with people uh, to the extent that it benefits me mm-hmm. and to the extent that it, um, you know, brings me happiness and to have like that commitment to even like your roommates or just to be someone who uh, your word to the people that you live with matters. Uh, you're someone who like, like you're saying, like who gives more than they're demanded, uh, who's actually is committed to people. Like you're, if you're in a core group, uh, you're in some way committed to the people that are in your core group and mm-hmm. show up every single week. I think that models a type of, um, just commitment that we don't see necessarily in many relationships on the college campus. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and again, I really do think that the person living this out, if, if the people on campus have the eyes to see, will see an attractive, an attractive lifestyle. I mean, I just, I just imagine what, I mean, hopefully this would be something that could mark our ministry. I imagine what some person who is woken up in the, the bed of random boyfriends and hookups in the past and then has to take the long walk home alone I wonder what they experience when they finally meet a, a culture or a group of people that um, doesn't throw them away at the end of the night or that doesn't just view them as something for sexual gratification or that embraces them and stays with them through difficulty and trial. Like I, I really do think our culture and, and college campus is maybe the worst at it is a campus of throwaway relationships. Um, and I think when the Christian community does its job really well, hopefully that's a deeply attractive thing to the, to the watching world. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So as we think about, we've talked about this every single week, but maybe what potential pitfalls could arise in group or maybe what are some ways that we can misinterpret this passage that we want to be on guard um, against? Yeah. A cu- couple quick things. The only thing I have some deeper worries about is the potential to read Jesus's words, turn the other cheek and, and the, the stuff that kind of falls after that. Um, I, you could read that in a, in the wrong way, I think to mean something like, well, we got to turn a blind eye toward justice. Right. So when something wrong happens, we don't respond to it. Right. So, um, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a, a wrong way to read this. Like God is very interested in justice, right? It is a feature of his character, but a fundamental principle of justice is that, right. It has to be carried out in the right way by the proper authority, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. So you could go read the back half of Romans 12 and the first half of Romans 13. And actually you're going to see a vision of justice that's laid out pretty clearly. Justice is going to happen and God's very interested in getting it done. But that justice is to be carried out by God, either through his temporal instrument, so, so government. So if somebody commits a crime, like, yeah, tell the police. It is a good thing to have justice happen. Or it'll be carried out spiritually or in the afterlife. Um, and, and God himself will be the judge there. So pursue justice through the God-ordained means. 
pray for and about them, have criminals arrested, pass laws that make society more just, et cetera, et cetera. So nothing in this passage, I think, is an excuse to say that we can't be just, that we have to overlook injustice and that we just have to suffer um, injustice uh, silently. Um, But what we have to know is that revenge is not justice. And I think that's what's at the heart of this passage. Just before this, Jesus talks about murder and the heart. Are you the kind of person who finds pleasure in hurting someone who's wronged you? The desire for vengeance, which is detrimental to our own spiritual health because it is the desire to murder our brother that we've just justified because we think he deserves it. Mm. This desire for vengeance is often what lies beneath, especially in our culture, I think, what lies beneath uh, the mask of our desire for justice. And I think Jesus is warning us against that. Um, So that's one thing. Don't mistake this for either justifying vengeance, but also don't mistake it as thinking that God's not interested in justice and that you shouldn't be interested in justice either. And then finally, a related worry. These are kind of similar. You could think of a verse like, do not resist the evil person as somehow um, Jesus telling you to be passive in the face of evil, right? So you can imagine a horrible situation where there's like uh, this verse is weaponized to continue a spouse abusing his spouse or that someone might think they shouldn't like resist if they're being raped because Jesus, you know, said, don't resist an evil person, right? That cannot be the correct way to read this verse. Again, this, this, the key to this passage is recognizing that hating our brother in our heart is spiritually deadly, right? So first Thessalonians says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everybody else. And so in any given situation, the question should be, how can I show this person the most good? How can I model most the love of Christ for them? You aren't paying back wrong from wrong from stopping an evil act from happening, right? Uh, especially to someone else. It's actually good for the other person as well as you to stop them from violating you, right? It's not, you're not doing another person a service by letting them attack you or rape you or whatever, yeah. right? You're actually helping them spiritually by stopping them from committing this heinous and, and evil act. Yeah. So the key is to figure out, and I think this is the heart of the passage. The key is to figure out when intervening in any evil act, are you experiencing hatred for, brother, for your brother in your heart? Uh, and if you are, then you've fallen afoul of the the underlying ethic of this passage. But if you uh, if you are considering the good of your neighbor and the good of your brother, um, then that doesn't mean that you can't pursue justice, that you have to just be passive in the face of evil. I don't think that's what we see on the cross. I don't think that's what we see in Jesus's life. Uh, he flipped some tables in the temple um, <laughs> because he saw that it was actually good to kick out the money changers, right? It's bad for the soul to try and, treat God's temple as a place to make riches. Um, the key to this passage is understanding that you have to love your neighbor, um, not hate your neighbor. And so I think once we realize that, then maybe we can hedge and, and stay away from some of these uh, interpretations of the verse that might make us just passive in the face of evil. Yeah, I love how this Pat, this sermon continues to lead us to think beyond just our surface level actions and really what our heart level motive is behind them. Um, Cool. So as we transition out of this week um, and even move into the next week after group, uh, maybe what's a a practical takeaway or maybe just any final words that you would have on the the passage? Yeah. Practical takeaway is tough because part of me just wants to be like, well, just do what it, you know, do, do this. Yeah. Um, And, and maybe that's too tough for me. Uh, It's, it's hard for me. I'll give, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a practical application that maybe I'll try and practice this week as well. Uh, I said, if I had to pick one verse, that I thought was stuck out to me the most would be verse 37 about your yes and yes and your no being no. Uh, And I find that particularly 
tricky for me uh, because I'm a man of many words, as I have demonstrated <laughs> over the last few minutes. Uh, and too many of my own words are flippant, unhelpful, or, or impure. So maybe this week, pick something from this passage. For me, I'm going to pick the yes and yes and no and no. And maybe spend the week just very, very intentionally practicing what it's like to live a, a pure life in this arena, right? So maybe this week, I'm going to try and talk a lot less unless my words have meaning, constructive meaning, and are good for someone else to hear. Maybe I'll try very hard to make few and simple commitments and keep those this week with increased intentionality and then see, see how that might affect my character, my heart, and my relationships. And maybe for you, you'd pick another one of these. Maybe there's a relationship in your life where you know mm-hmm. you need to be more faithful to this person yep. in whatever way that might mean. Uh, to resist the throwaway culture. And maybe this week just intentionally practice this. And I think maybe after a week or two of practicing one of these things, we might find that our lives are just a little bit more peaceful and good. Love that. Well, CJ, thank you for your your work here, diving in and giving us a good just floor for our conversations in group this week. Uh, We hope you guys have a great discussion and uh, we hope the scripture is transformative for you all. And we will see you back next time for week six. 